Let me say, first of all, thank you to Jason for the great privilege of speaking to you as a congregation today, my congregation. It's a great privilege. And I want to say something also about the wonderful way that Dias and I have been able to work with Clint. Both of us met with him Wednesday evening. You know, Dias is speaking next week. And so we shared with him the things that we wanted to develop. And I really got to feel something of his heart, of his person. And, and the way in which, in a great sense, he's an epitome of what I'm going to attempt to say today in my sermon thoughts. His life is so dedicated to the service of Christ, to the rule and the reign of God. It was a blessing, and thank you, Clint, very much. And I also want to take just a second to thank the graciousness of the church that you've received us into your midst. You've used us according to, we believe, some of the gifts that God has given us. And I want to thank especially the ladies of the congregation who've been tied to this in the ladies' Bible class. They've been a great blessing to her and such a wonderful way in which her life was integrated into theirs and vice versa. So we have a tremendous debt of gratitude to you as a church. So thank you. Now, sometimes my voice, I guess it's because I'm a little older, will tend to go down a little bit. And if it does, you just kind of go like this. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure Diesta will do the same. <laughs> I do want to communicate. And I trust the things that I will communicate grow out of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. At this time, then, I'd like to turn to the sixth chapter of Matthew and begin reading with verse 1 and then drop down to verse 5 through verse 15. Beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And whenever you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, 
for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But whenever you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. May God bless the reading of his word. When's the last time that you've prayed the Lord's Prayer? Said it to yourself. Said it out loud. Further, when is the last time that the church, the community that is to reflect the rule and the reign of God. When's the last time that we prayed the prayer together? Now, I think that there are some barriers as to why we, at least in our religious heritage, are not really praying the Lord's Prayer individually, personally, in our family life, in the community life of the church. There are two basic barriers, and they go to the heart, really, of how we understand the Gospel of Matthew and the teachings of Jesus.
And the first barrier is that the Gospels were not written for the church. That's a misconception, I believe, that we have in our minds and our hearts. And it was taught to us that the chronology of all of this is built on that the church began in Acts 2. And everything before Acts 2 is a part of the past of that and has nothing to do with the reality of the church. Listen to me this morning. All four Gospels were written to the church. The Gospel of Matthew was written to Jewish Christian communities around 85 A.D. It is the gathering of the portrait of Jesus in the mind and the heart of Matthew and conveying it to these congregations that they may carry forth the teachings of Jesus in their lives. That's what the gospel is about. How can I illustrate this? Let me turn to a scene in Matthew 8. It's one of the great miracle scenes of the gospel. Jesus gets in the boat with the disciples or the disciples get in the boat with Jesus, maybe the proper way to say it, and they launch out into the Sea of Galilee, and all of a sudden, they're in the midst of a windstorm, and the word that is used there in the original language is seismos, the word from which we get quake, earthquakes. And Matthew alone uses this term as he describes the storm that is growing upon this sea. And they find themselves in peril. The waters are whipping up over the edge, filling the boat. Finally, they waken Jesus. And they cry out to Jesus, Save us! Deliver us! We are in peril. Our lives are in jeopardy. Now one of the greatest scholars in the Gospel of Matthew, looking at this, says, this is a kind of transparency that we look through the scene of Jesus with the disciples, and as we look through that scene, through the transparency, we see the life of the church. The church is in peril. The church is in the midst of tribulation. The church is in need of deliverance and salvation. And so as the church hears the gospel read in their midst, they are able to say, yes, Lord, it is us. So behind Jesus and the disciples, we look through a transparency into the life of the church. Read the Gospels. Read them in this light. They are messages to the church. Let me use a second illustration from Matthew. Just before the passage that we read, Jesus talked about 
a higher righteousness that the disciples manifest in their lives in conjunction to the Pharisees and the scribes. And he said, love your enemies. Love them. They may persecute you, but love them. The higher righteousness. Now, which of us this morning would say that the love of enemies is something that belonged to the time of the disciples, but somehow we can ignore it today? No, the message of Jesus in Matthew is for us right now, today. Third example. I don't have too many examples. The 18th chapter of Matthew. Listen to me now. Is a discourse to the church. Ah, ha, ha, 1817, I believe. If you have the problem with your brethren, you can't reconcile it. Finally, in the end, you take it. Where, brothers and sisters, you can tell me, take it to the what? Church. Only Matthew uses this word in his gospel to reflect not only Jesus, but the life of the church. Now, Peter in that context. <clears throat> he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Now this is part of the discourse to the church. Peter answers, rather Jesus answers, no, I say to you, 70 times seven. There is no limit. We are called at all times to the grace and the mercy of God. And then Jesus tells the little story of the two slaves who the disparity between their wealth and income is so significant. One owes talents, 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 talents of debts. Pleads with his master forgive. And his master released the debts and forgave him. And he goes out and finds a fellow slave who owes him about one six hundred thousandth of the amount that he owed. Jewish hyperbole is at work here. Pay up. Grabs him by the throat. Casts him in the debtor's prison. And <clears throat> infuriates the Lord who had forgiven the great debt of all. Now hear me. 
This is an echo of the Lord's Prayer. This is the best explanation of what is being said in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Gospels were written for the church, for you, for me. Why would we want to leave them in the backdrop? Why would we want to assume them and go on to the letters when the writers of the letters like Paul and Peter and others are using the very things of Jesus in order to inform the church? They didn't forget the Gospels. So I think if we look at it, very carefully we'll sign that the great scenes of the Gospel of Matthew echo back to the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer points forward to these various scenes of life under the rule and the reign of God. The second barrier, in a sense, goes out of the, sec of the first. And it's when we come to the petition, thy kingdom come. There are those, and I've heard sermons, and I imagine that you have too, <clears throat> that have said in light of that petition, there's no need to pray that petition because the kingdom and the church are the same. And the church has come. There's no need to pray for the kingdom to come. Oh, listen. That's skidding along thin ice. That's dipping your toes in very shallow water. Let me turn back to the Beatitudes, just a chapter before in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, you tell me, theirs what is the kingdom of heaven. Present tense. Then the next one. Blessed are they that mourn, for they, what? Shall be comforted. Future tense. Every beatitude between blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs the kingdom of heaven. Every other beatitude is future tense in this orientation. The whole notion of the kingdom is that yes, 
It is so magnificent and great. We can speak of it in the past and in the present, but we also have to see that its fulfillment is yet to come in the future. So mysterious and great is the rule and the reign of God. Then in Matthew 13, as he gives us the various parables of the kingdom of heaven, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like, it's an analogy. It can't be captured with a mathematical equation. It's like a sower who sows seed in the field. It's like a merchant who sells all that he has in order that he can have what? One pearl of great price. It's like. How about that kingdom? Who is the greatest in the kingdom? In Matthew 18, Jesus says to the disciples, discourse on the church. Who's greatest? Bring me a child. This is a study in sociology. The child was least in the Jewish family. Powerless. And Jesus says, here is the candidacy of the kingdom. Not long after that, a rich ruler comes and says, what do I need to do? And Jesus invites him to sell all that he has to come and follow him. And the kingdom then completely destroys and turns upside down the values that human beings tend to live with. It's easier for a camel. Now, I want you to not try to explain this away. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom says, kingdom is so great. God is so great. It involves the entire universe. It involves all of his creation. It involves all of his people. And the beauty of it is that it's to be mirrored within the group of community believers that is called the church. And I say to you, why aren't we praying the prayer? Why did we let our religious neighbors down the street pray the prayer? Is it because we think we can't have memorized prayers? The whole history of Judaism, of Christianity, has had memorized prayers. The difference is what's in our hearts and in our minds as whether those prayers are going to take on power and meaning for our lives. 
say it out loud. Put it on your mirror. Say it. Your life will be changed. That's how powerful the Lord's Prayer is because it's the kingdom prayer. It's the prayer of the Great Commission. Teach people, baptize them, and teach them. Here now, we quote this all the time, and teach them to observe what everything that I have commanded you, even unto the end of the age. I'm preaching to me. Can you say amen? amen? Let me close with a little boy's story. Me. You probably think I was never a little boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Little boy. I remember growing up in the farm. My uncle was my surrogate father. My mother kept house for him as a widow. It was a time in which electricity had not yet come to southern Minnesota, out in the rural areas at least. Yeah, I'm old. And we milk cows every day. That is my older brother's. <laughs> I fed the cats their milk. And, and we used to separate the milk. Does that ring a bell? Yeah, we had a separator. But no electricity. And so the only way you separate is you can crank that thing. And out of one spout came blue milk. And out of another spout came cream. And we gave, ha ha ha, our health astuteness of the time, we gave the blue milk to the pigs. <laughs> and we sold the cream to buy groceries. But we moved. We had electricity. My uncle said, let's get a new separator. We got a new separator. Boy, I was looking over that separator, and here they came. They filtered all the milk into the big bowl, and I started to take that crank, and I went round, round, round. My uncle put his finger in my shoulder, and he said, Stuart, don't be a dumb cough. <laughs> Plug it in. I'm not talking about work salvation. But I am talking about our need to let God separate the milk 
and the cream. But if I don't put something in the bowl, it's only going to be dry. Nothing comes out. Luke's version, shorter. But the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples to pray. Yeah. John the Baptist has said prayer. He who eat locusts and wild honey, who preach repentance in the wilderness, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Less than a century later, a little writing called the Didache appeared in Christianity. And already life maybe is getting too ordered, but the author of the Didache writes, pray the Lord's Prayer three times daily. It's a community prayer. It's a personal prayer. It's God's grace to our lives. Let us Avail I encourage us as a church, incorporate the prayer somewhere in our service, either before the Lord's Supper or as a part of a main prayer. Let us hear it. Let us pray it together. We belong to Jesus. It's his prayer. It's our prayer. It's the rule and the reign of God potentially within our lives. Now we're going to sing it. I hope you have a full throat and that you really sing the Lord's Prayer. Thank you for hearing me.